This is Up the Creek, the definitive Jonathan Creek podcast with your hosts, my good friend Daniel Kruber and me, Gav Murphy. Today, Jonathan and Madri are figuring out how a man can be in New York and a wimpy in Bishop Storford at the same time. So on this podcast, we look at Jonathan Creek through the lens of three things. The effect, the method, and the reveal. Daniel, what is the effect in Time Waits for Norman? Norman Stangerson is seen buying a quarter pounder in Bishop Storford while he's meant to be in New York. I mean, this episode is so delightfully naff. <laughs> I mean, partway through the episode, he apparently dies. But don't forget, the original impossible dilemma here is he's yeah. seen buying... a quarter pounder in britain when it's meant to be in new york in a wimpy in a wimpy (laughs) so much of this takes place in a wimpy and like weirdly that's a thing that i i I stuck in most british things i was like wimpies that's a british thing wimpy's not a british thing you know what yeah i know started in like america and uh, their headquarters are in south africa but yeah, I think it's starting in Chicago. Big American thing. Like, I always had it down as a British thing because the big selling point was certainly over here was, it was on all their adverts and all their posters, was you can eat a wimpy with a knife and fork. We give you a knife and fork in a wimpy. Which seems like a very British thing. Yeah. It's just a very British thing. Yeah, it's like, it's the, like the one place that my mum would take our my uh, great auntie Megan. If it's just like, oh, we can't take it to Auntie Megan to McDonald's. We can take her to a wimpy because she can have a knife and fork there. You've blown my mind there, Gavin. That is the thing. So basically, a man has been seen in a wimpy when he's in New York. That's it. It's no murder. No murders. That's it. Uh, and then, like, the way that Maddie gets involved is Norman Stangerson's wife is... Uh, a what is she? A she's publisher. a publisher. She's a book publisher. Yeah, at first right. I thought she was the designer, but she's not. Because her agent yes. says, oh, that's why I'll never be a hard-nosed publisher or agent. That's right, yeah. she's yeah, quite... Yeah. She's quite dismissive of the whole um, Jonathan Creek angle. The way that she handbrake turns to hate Jonathan is really odd. If I found out it was real, I'd be like, this is even better. Considering we've just had Dance Macabre, it's it's qu- it's quite a small, quiet episode. But you know what? I generally think this episode probably costs more to make than Dance Macabre because there's so many setups. They're setups. everywhere. Like, they're in Heathrow for most of it. They're in New York, Gavin. Oh, yeah. They're shooting in New York, mate. What are you talking about, Heathrow? I can't believe they shot in New York. Also, the clock budget alone. Yeah. I do, um, because the episode's called Time Waits for Norman. Yeah. I love this, like, weird... Again, so delightfully naff. Oh, so naff. This weird extra texture of Norman Stangerson being a temporophobe, while his wife, Antonia, loves time. I'm sorry. Horology. If you were were that against time if you were that afraid of time the concept of clocks and time first date and she's that into clocks it would come up on the first date right and she's like if he said oh um something you should know about me i'm really sorry but i'm terrified of the concept of time and she's like well something you know about me i've got a fuckload of clocks back in my house you know what i take off that's the end of that let's get married (laughs) also because he gives that, um, when Manny first goes around, he gives that really intense little soliloquy about time. Only time will tell, I suppose. Time. Slipping through our fingers, Madeline. With every heartbeat. Even as we stand here doing absolutely nothing, our lives, existence, 
everything is being voraciously consumed. So her solution is to take the hands off the clocks, mm. which I think would freak me out more. Absolutely. Because well, also, there's a digital clock that is just red zeros flashing. If you're worried about time slipping away, that's not good. Also, he has a watch. <laughs> yeah. Well, so that's the thing that I kind of didn't remember and actually let's go into the method so the method is norman and his old business partner mel porthrop <laughs> have been sharing one identity so they were it seems like successful businessmen then uh they their business had to fold and they both struggle getting jobs but they realized that when one of them got Norman gets a job and he realized that actually Mel could be, be him half the time. So Mel would be Norman in New York, which would then allow Norman to spend time with his girlfriend and their son instead of his wife. Yeah, which is the real final act revelation yeah. that he's living this double life for mm -hmm. other reasons. It's not just to give Mel a bit of bumps. It it's uh yeah, it's it's kind of strange, isn't it? Like so the the clues that we've got um, the note in the wallet. You know what a mnemonic is? Something that helps you remember something. All the hours I spent wrestling with this thing, I never did the one thing that would have solved it in a second. I never read it out loud. What kind of thing's hard to remember that you might not want someone else to see? It's a phone number. Oh, when I know. Oh, one, nine, oh. To free hate. Two, three, eight. To seven, oh, one. Two, seven, oh, one. <laughs> brilliant that is brilliant to me i love that that is but, brilliant that's right so the note in the wallet okay yeah. is the phone number for norman's uh, um hidden partner his girlfriend on, on so she's also a girlfriend that he met when he was really young and they've had a, a child together completely secret unknown to antonio so this is her phone number mel also has this phone number in his wallet and they've written it down in the mnemonic to keep it secret why is he so happy to let Maddie rifle through his wallet? Yeah, that's true. And then also just to go, I don't know what that is. Get that's rid of weird. that. That's I think that's Norman's tactic for a lot of stuff. Because mm. when weird, this French it? turns up with his wallet, he's going, this is mad. Yeah. He's not flustered <laughs> at all. He's like, you, bear in mind, Norman literally saw that guy the other day. Yeah. He plays it completely cool and just goes, that's weird. Yeah. I was asleep in a hotel on the Upper East Side. <laughs> but also as well, the thing for me that I find like a big hole in this is at the time in the 90s, I feel like I could remember about 40, I could remember every single one of my friend's phone numbers. I still really? remember, I still remember my mate Nat's phone number, 01443. Like I still remember that because That's I used selective. to dial it all the time. <laughs> so I feel like if you're doing that, you can remember that number. But it's the mother of your child. You can remember her phone number. I can see why Mel would need it, but then Mel wouldn't need to keep the number secret. No. It doesn't make I any don't sense. don't really understand. I almost feel like David Renwick read that about somewhere. Like, I'll put that in one of these. Yeah. I, I mean, it's cool because it kind of brings the magic thing back into it. <sighs> well, not magic. It's just like a nice puzzle for him to solve. And, and then, the, the, yeah, the other, the other big one is uh, the burger restaurant and the quarter pounder. So Norman doesn't eat meat, but he goes to a wimpy to get a burger. And it turns out he's getting the burger just so he can get the uh, coupon to get a football wall chart for his secret son. Which somehow Jonathan intuits means that he has a son. 
It's wild, that is. It's a big leap, because also, he kind of latches onto that poster mm. quite quickly when they're in the restaurant. Mm, he really does. Uh, but also, it's really... Because I think it's because of the... Like, he was sitting right there, and it's the idea that he was just looking at this football poster and coveting it uh, all the time. But it is really strange how mad that Mr. French goes. Maybe I should get myself a new guide dog or something. It was you, Mr. Stangerson. Don't try and freak me. I saw you then. There's plans, I'll see you now. Yes, all right, Mr. French. We thank you at any rate for your honesty and for coming all this way. Because I feel like if I worked at a, a restaurant and someone came in and I thought I recognised them and they said, oh, no, that wasn't me, actually. I don't know if I would get that angry. I think I'd just be like, yeah, all right, whatever, mate. I just don't want to get involved in any of this. See you later. Maybe lots of people say, like... Call him a liar. Yeah. He's always seeing that, Lewis French. He always says he's easy when he has him. He's like, um, also, when he turns up to the house at the beginning to return the wallet, mm. why is he watching her in the kitchen like pipes from Ghostwatch? It's a really strange scene that she's is, where she's got the chilies in her eyes and yeah. you feel like someone's going to get her. I guess it kind of feeds into the. It, I mean, it does, but it doesn't because it gets it reveals her. Age, but it kind of feeds into the idea that later on, Jonathan's like, support, suppose Norman Stangson was planning on killing his wife. I mean, where does that come from? <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. Like Jonathan throwing out some wild speculation there. Yeah. Because he starts tabling that this whole thing is an alibi set up for himself. Yeah. Um, I'm not keen on that. But it's quite a good epiphany in this one, I think. What is the epiphany in this one? Superman. Yeah, so uh, the, the idea of somebody says you're not Superman comes up. And I think for, obviously, Superman is one person with two identities. Yeah. This is two people with one identity. Mm. And that just kind of, I think, is a confluence for Jonathan to bring all this stuff together. There is another little epiphany as well, which is how he realizes that the um, bit of paper is a mnemonic. Is when the tax lady is talking about her parents. July the 5th. Do you know how my father always remembers it? The day before was July the 4th, Independence Day. The day after, he was a married man. Terrible memory he's got for dates and figures. Do you understand? I think I'm beginning to. And she tells this mad, long out, uh, like drawn out story. And then Jonathan has this mad look on his face because uh, he's realized, oh, another th way of remembering something is with a mnemonic. And that's, that's goes in the epiphany. Like, does she exist just to be able to bring that in? That's bonkers. Uh, I think you're right. Does it make sense? <laughs> I mean, it's, a, it's something that entirely could not exist today. <laughs> yeah. Um, just because any kind of video conferences or mobile smartphones renders this entire plot useless. The one thing that I was thinking, though, well, one, I couldn't be asked going to the airport that much, particularly if I wasn't flying. I mean, if that was my job two or three times a month going to New York. Have you ever taken someone to the airport and then left, like, when... Not necessarily like saying goodbye, just a, a friend or something, like when there hasn't been like an emotional, a big emotional connection. Yeah. I've... I feel gutted that I'm not going away. You take, like, when I used to take my parents to the, when they were going away, I always feel really sad I was never going on holiday. Be like, what, if oh, I told you, what if I told you you could go to a wimpy in Bishop Storford? Yeah. Um, but yeah, other than that, are they sharing money as well? They must be half in the salary. Because that, he, remember, Norman Stangson has got two lives, so he needs to make half the, half the money go double the amount of weight. And he's already given half the money to Mel. Exactly. He's got a quarter for each bit of his life. That's, uh, I don't, 
He's done his maths wrong, though. He thought it'd be twice as much. Yeah, I kind of don't get that. What I do like about the whole method, though, is what it doesn't necessarily tap into an existing magical principle, but it taps into something about the lives of some magicians. So we talked about this before, but it's basically a very budget British version of the Prestige. Yeah. <laughs> and it also taps into that whole, like, Chung Ling Su maintaining an illusion about your actual life. Yeah. So even though there's not a magic trick involved, there mm. is some kind of magic woven into this method, I think. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I really like... Because you at the time, when, when they're revealing it, you're like well, what about the passport? And he says, well, with our graphics contacts, it was easy enough to sort a passport out. Huh? Oh, we've got graphics contacts, but I don't know if I could, I could sort a passport out. Yeah, what's your printer like? I can mock <laughs> one up. How are you making it? What happens to kind of throw everything a little bit even further off whack is that on Independence Day, on July 4th, there's an accident in New York and Mel is killed. So... The New York Norman is killed, uh, so that kind of throws everything a little, a little bit out of whack because now Norman has to be dead in the UK because yeah. you know and everybody knows back him. from the dead. Miraculously, one, one bit that really made me laugh. So they've been doing this for a few years, right? And they've known each other for years because they run the business yes. together. Norman says after Mel's death, "I never realised how close we were until now." It's you like, sh- hang on, you're mate. You're sharing a life. <laughs> yeah, I, I sort of liked him. Also, surely this is the person you trust most in the world. No. I never oh, realised actually... how close we were. What? <laughs> you were the same person. <laughs> you can't get fucking closer than that. Uh, another little complication. Does it make sense? Oh, Mel's up for it, isn't he? Mm. <laughs> like, Mel goes along with it remarkably well. And then it, Norman says, yeah, he got the voice down. Got little kicks out of things like that. Mel was a psycho. But also, presumably, because Norman has been wor- was working with Mel for a good few years, did Norman meet Antonia around the same time as their business went under? Because Antonia doesn't seem to know who Mel is. Yeah. So was that just a really nice coincidence? I really don't know, because they said they've only been married 18 months. Oh, okay, yet- maybe they did then. So maybe they've just been doing this, and then he met Antonia and was just like, here we go, a really good thing that happened. In an episode about time, the timelines on it are really weird, because the yeah. son's, what, seven? Yeah. And he said that he met Gillian when they were at 18, and, like 19 and 17. My God. He's basically got together these two women quite late in life. God knows how many other kids he's got. That's the thing. It's really odd because the guy, he's played quite sympathetically, but actually is a bit of a monster. He really is. And he feels sorry for himself, which is even worse. Yeah, I don't like, it feels him. like he's a victim of his own emotions. Mm. Also, I like, um, <laughs> you know, in The Prestige, when um, Borden just makes out that the thing they've done is like the biggest sacrifice any person could ever make to yeah. their craft. When they reveal how it's done, Norman says, if it sounds like a complex enterprise, it wasn't. <laughs> easy, <laughs> easy for Norman. Yeah, he's evil. I've tried to love too. Maybe your crime is you don't know who to love. If you ever decide, Norman, let me know. Because time's running out faster than you think. Okay, so that's the effect, the method, and the reveal of Time Waits for Norman, which I can't say without laughing. But there are certain other elements which make up every episode of Jonathan Creek. We've added a new one now, due to popular demand, due to tangible demand. Uh, the Meldrew Award. 
the most unbelievable moment in an episode. Most unbelievable moment in an episode because you know, or like overly sitcommy uh, moment because you know, as you know, David Renwick did one foot in the grave with you know one of the greatest British sitcom characters, Victor Meldrew, getting himself into all sorts of scrapes, and I feel like he just can't quite let that past go. Uh, because got it. now and again you get these bits where you just go that only makes sense in the wildest sitcom world um, which we're not meant to be in um, for this I've got just seeing Jonathan being attacked by a dog yep. through the front yep. window <laughs> yep also the Meldrew you know what the, you know when the beat is is when they find out that it wasn't even his house unbelievable um, but also really strange because you see it happening and you're sort of laughing and Maddie sort of backs away when she finds out that it's the old lady's house. The dog draws blood. It's quite a, <laughs> it looks quite a deep wound. Which I don't think you would see in a sitcom. I don't think you see much like people getting wounded. That's why it's rock comedy drama. Girl. Exactly, exactly. I feel like that's the overall winner for the Meldrew Award. It is. I would like a small little um, nod towards Mel being killed by taking a firework to the face. <laughs> um, on, okay. the, on the 4th of July. On the 4th of July. Uh, okay, what's the thing that's dated the most? Uh, I feel like a publisher... Uh, offering up pictures and going of like the cover and going or he could be black to give it a more ethnic tone that's, yep, that's, that's dated that's pretty bad it, that could also be in uh, that alright bit as well um, but I, I've I've put uh, the thing that's probably dated the most just using those weird New York skyline GVs like those uh, those shots of New York skyline anytime they go to New York which is quite clearly filmed ne- anywhere near uh, you reckon? New York yeah <laughs> because it's near Heathrow yes I've put, I've, I've put things dated the most depiction of America Drink, yeah. drinking bottled water how American Evian just being unnecessarily aggressive yeah Chinese takeaway boxes I, I, I never had those as a kid I always associate them with America absolutely yeah, yeah. and then also when they say yeah <laughs> he's sitting opposite Carol and there's cinnamon bagel yeah <laughs> bagels absolutely you do that's a thing in uh if it was if this was in britain like those chinese takeaway boxes look amazing compared to what we get which is like those weird see-through uh plastic evidence trays yeah i don't like those at all it makes like because the food is all squished in especially having noodles or something like that it always looks like intestines i don't like it i don't like it at all but you know what though like jonathan creek has the series not the person the series has a really really strange relationship with america and i do think that has dated the lost where it's like it's kind of seen if you have because every episode pretty much has an american character in it so many of them have and i think it's kind of to show that the episode is i don't know like international or mysterious you know it's really strange let's go on to the most british thing then so for me like i was gonna put a huge part of it revolving around a wimpy but apparently that's that's not not true i've just put wimpy yeah it's really strange do you know a really strange bit though i wanted to go back about the wimpy is do you notice in the wimpy when she's speaking to mr french when he's having a wee (gasps) oh yeah i know what you're saying now a guy with a massive mustache walks into the thing do you recognize that guy 
No. So I recognized him because I, I wrote him down in um, my notes from a, a previous episode. He plays a paramedic in No Trace of Tracy. What? So he plays the paramedic that's in the kitchen when the frog is found in the throat. I looked up this guy because I was like, well, okay. Because also, strangely enough, there's another actor who also appears in No Trace of Tracy, which is the homeless dude who drinks the meths. Um, he's also in No Trace of Tracy he's one of the band members that gets sacked but I looked at this guy with a moustache Sandy Johnson he's the director he's the director uh, of the episode and a bunch of different episodes of Jonathan Creek does he have cameos in his episodes he does yeah he's got a bunch of other uh, cameos oh, coming up so we'll, so have we... To, we'll have to be on Sandy Watch he directed 11 episodes of Jonathan Creek oh wow because so... I was going to say like, he stands out quite. it's not a subtle cameo no, it really isn't. But he's um I look I looked him up. He is like a staple of British like comedy dramas. What's his name? Sandy Johnson. That so, literally sounds like an innuendo yeah. in Jonathan Creek. <laughs> but he's he directed loads of different stuff. He directed Jonathan Creek. He directed Benadorm. Remember Benadorm? He directed a load of uh Harry Enfield and Paul Whitehouse stuff. Like he, he's a, a touch of frost, Ruth Rendell mysteries, bugs. Oh, is he doing a cracker? I love bugs. Mate, bugs was done... the other thing on Saturday night I used to love. He's a British Saturday TV legend. Yeah, absolutely. But also, a really wild thing that he's done. He was one of the Knights of Knee in Monty, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. What a career. I know. He's still going as well. He's still going, old Sandy Johnson, born in Glasgow. <laughs> but I thought wow. it was a really, really strange thing when I was like, I need to know what this yeah, is it really stands out doesn't it that yeah well i mean it's a very british thing because he's yeah. he's a big thing the it? only other thing i had was um a villain called norman i i really like i feel like the two wimpy girls the two people who work at the wimpy are quite british um but i i really like this because what he does he brings in was he who's the picture newt of oh, newt gringridge newt gringridge yeah american house at the time but I really like this because he shows them that he shows them the pitch and says, "Was this guy in?" And they're like, "Yeah, absolutely, absolutely was." But there is a really nice sort of magic thing to this, where when people are retelling you a story, they want to tell you, or they kind of embellish and they want to tell you exactly what you want to hear. It's like a similar mm. thing as like if you retell a magic trick that you've just seen to someone, even yeah. if you've just seen like thirty seconds ago, you'll try and make that magic trick sound better than it was yeah because you 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 miss out all the little incidental steps you absolutely the big yeah. beats yeah absolutely and i kind of i really liked that about it um, actually that's quite in keeping thematically with the episode you're using time that's passed to misdirect from what actually happened absolutely yeah that's what Renwick was going for probably. yeah well, i hope so <laughs> um i really like uh, as most british thing slightly ballsed up Balls in something up. That's a very British yeah. thing. We've talked about this on a few occasions and different things that we've done. Where because you know we're, we're travelled men, we get to we get to meet Americans quite a lot. And America's view of food, British food, is really poor. Like Americans think that British people don't have good food, um, which it's obviously completely bollocks. Uh, some of the best food in the world here, but the food that Antonia is cooking looks oh, fucking disgusting. I, I've almost put that in, is that all right section I've got this. In that all right, I've, got, I've put state of that roast chicken. It and she looks... poached it. <laughs> it looks like it's come like out of a tin. Po- I feel like she's poached it. There's no way that has seen an oven. It looks like it's come out of a fucking tin. It's so slimy and horrible. 
Do you want a bit of skin? Absolutely not. <laughs> it looks horrible. Uh, yeah, let's stick that in that all right then, because that is That is definitely horrible. not all right. Because and even when she's putting the rest of the food on, like the broccoli just looks like it's just been shown a bit of water yeah. uh, and then chucked on the plate. It, you pits it all looks cheese. horrible. Absolutely horrible. But also, maybe, I don't know, is it meant to sort of remind, like that really weird bald chicken, is it meant to remind you of the other that's not all right? Is that it's a right bit? Not all right. Which is the treatment of a girl with alopecia. It's terrible. It, it's really I think hor- really horrible. Because it is literally, she, it is a, ju- a big bro joke. Like, mm. everyone should laugh at it. And also, Jonathan's horrible about it. I don't like Jonathan's reaction to it. Jonathan's horrible about it. Maddie's horrible about it. Yeah, it's really terrible. It's really not on. Because it's weirdly stigmatized and it obviously really traumatic for a woman to lose her hair. Absolutely. More so than the guy just because of the way society is. I remember yeah. when it happened to Gail Porter and that was yeah. a big thing and she was really good at speaking quite openly about it. But this episode does like is literally why it, one of the reasons it is traumatic because it's just considered a joke because it's considered unusual. Yeah. It's terrible. It's, yeah, it's not on, man. It's really grim and it keeps going as well. Like she brings in Kojak uh, jokes and stuff like that and also I feel really sorry for that girl as well because they really go to town on her they've got the alopecia thing and they're hammering that but they also really go to town on her family being really strange about the cows the cows and like, the farming like real country bumpkins yeah it's she's it's, lovely Jonathan. it's really odd really really odd um I feel like this this episode has been edited slightly as well and I, this definitely goes into that all right when they buy the homeless man some meths to drink. I've got that in as well. Because <laughs> uh, I remember as a kid, this and the episode of Simpsons where they're making wine in France about putting antifreeze in. I actually yeah. used to think as a kid, oh, is that what you drink? Yeah. But it's just poison. Yeah. I think it just, it gets you pissed for cheap um, because it poisons you. I don't, I don't think the meths does. I think the meths just gets you really wrecked. But you will be ill. But I guess the idea is you could probably buy a litre for it. A litre of it for like 50 pence. But also, I'm not being funny, but if the idea is he's buying that homeless man something to bribe him to tell him the story, go buy him some fucking booze, Jonathan. Buy him some Johnny Walker. Yeah. It's really odd, that is. Um, but, it, just really but also, if you watch that episode back on Netflix, I feel like it's edited in a really odd way to not show him taking any swigs until the final bit because it keeps cutting away just as about he's take a, he's about to take a sip. He cuts to Johnny and Maddie, and then Johnny and Maddie, and then it cuts back to him, and he's going like, like <laughs> so. I feel like it's been edited in a really strange way to maybe not show it, but then they just show him taking a massive swig out of it at the end. Yeah, I don't get it. Yeah, that's def- not that's right. definitely not all right. Let's open up the grot cabinet. Hello, Adam. <laughs> You're right, Adam. Yes, we've brought you some food. Stop crying. Uh, I, I, amazing line. Uh, Norman in the bar saying, You won't get it to stand up. Sorry? Yep. Yep. There you go. Nice <laughs> good old British innuendo there. <laughs> but also. Good old British innuendo in like completely disregarding how humans speak. Yeah. Because that's not how anyone would say that. But then also at the end of the episode when you realise what Norman's like, is he flirting with her? I don't know. (laughs) 
he loves it. He's just trying to love another person, Gav. Yeah, he's loving too many people. Yeah, I guess all the stuff with the auditor, when she asked him, shall we keep at it? <laughs> and then they just have this amazing little uh, sex scene. Also, the the bull semen. Bull semen, I've got, yeah. Well, also, why is Jonathan going around just sticking his fingers in all these pots, licking them? Yeah, I'm not putting my finger in anything in that. Like, the idea is he's Someone meant to be repulsed house. by these farmers. Be his girlfriend. Well, it's not his girlfriend, but her parents' house. Just yeah, it's licking really everything. Strange. Really, really strange. Oh. You got anything else for more for the grot no, cabinet? Apart, no. Not really. All right, Not let's, grot. let's put the lock on it again. Sorry, I'd see you in a bit, mate. We get some really good Jonathan and Maddie relationship stuff in this episode. A lot of it being born out of her talking to Barry, which I think is really nice. And then is that really funny, again, quite sitcom-y thing, but also quite filmic as well, where she's saying one thing, saying, like, we're not doing yeah. anything, but also not feeling single, juxtaposed with him having sex with the tax person. Oh, I don't know, Barry. It's a stupid situation of us never actually doing anything, but still not feeling single. As a result of which, we're both denying ourselves sex with other partners. I'm not that fast, but I just don't think it's fair on Jonathan. Davili has to keep saving his body for me. This is the first time we've seen Jonathan have sex for someone. It is, yeah, and he's really going for it. Because we thought Sheena, but they do go for it. Mm. Also, she does a re- good recap of where they are, of them yeah. not having sex, but not being quite single. So they're not moving on with their lives, but there's still there's something between them. But then, like, today, I was, like, watching these again. Huge passage of time. It's mm. half a year. Because the last episode takes place the day after Halloween. Right. We know this is the 4th of July. So it's a good six months has passed between episodes. Do you think that's on purpose or do you think they just haven't thought of it i don't they needed a firework to go up in someone's face mate yeah they needed to kill mel somehow in america what better way fourth of july party Mm. i don't know i do think it kind of ties in because if we're being really pedantic about this i imagine the first book is obviously done yeah i like to think that first book is all the cases from the first season oh yeah that's how i always so that yeah Yeah. so that so if you look at where they are now They've taken a break. She's been finishing the book. He's gone back to work for Adam. Yeah. They are not seeing each other as regularly as they used to. And then That's obviously true. the second season is her collecting cases for the next book. Yeah. Um. So there could be a big gap. I'm not saying they don't see each other at all, but it's not as intense as when they're working on a crime. That's when all the friction comes through. Yeah, that's true. But I always, I do think that the way that they're speaking, the way that she's speaking to him, it doesn't it like they're not catching up after a long period it feels yeah. like they're just continuing a conversation so i think they are in constant contact but you are right maybe like their actual proper friction and proper sparks come when they're on a case it's like, it's like you and me when we're on a podcast yeah exactly <laughs> even though we're doing this we're having to do this over zoom yeah um, <laughs> there's still friction mate it's still friction uh there's yeah there's lots of weird little bits in that where he tells her. He just straight up tells her. We don't get that scene. We get the aftermath of it where he tells her. And then he's like, shirty? Who's getting shirty? Because she's obviously been going... She's been going on about the fact that Jonathan is saving his body for her. Um, and she feels sorry for him. So she obviously feels a little bit silly then that he just comes out and tells her. Why does he tell her? I don't know. He obviously... It's weird. I wonder if there are slightly different places in the relationship where he thinks maybe they've moved further on past that. Where yeah. she is maybe more in a different place unfortunately then we get the sort of cartoon maddie who is my least favorite bit of maddie yes jonathan 
like, how are you doing? Look, I know it's late, I just wanted to say, oh yes. <sighs> Rupert, that's incredible, you beast. What are you doing to me? <sighs> Which is so sitcom -y, but Jonathan picks up on it straight away. But that poor guy who's oh. there playing chess with her. <laughs> He's having the night of his life. He just yeah. had a vegetable lasagna, some peas. <laughs> um, also, Jonathan's tracking Maddie's menstrual cycle. That's probably not all right. That's, that's definitely not all right. But yeah, then we get this really nice. We get this really nice scene at the end, then, which has the sexy music underneath. Seriously, you and me, are a team. We don't need that kind of friction. A little friction can be quite nice. Hey. Seen the time? You've missed your last train. We both know what this means. Do we? A six hour wait at that sodding station. Oh well. Find yourself a nice bench. Try not to sit in any vomit. It'll soon go. If you didn't have that kind of friction, none of you would be into it. For sure. For sure. You definitely need that kind of friction. Um, but then, because he's told her that he slept with this tax lady, she then and then sends him to wait at the station for six hours. Yeah. He's still your mate. Let him stay over. I, I, like, stick him on the sofa. Like, I would... That is friendship end in territory, that is. But considering she's just got this lovely new house, which we you think know, was probably paid for by... By Jonathan. Basic, by Jonathan, being in her life... Not Creek Bucks, like, I mean... You know he doesn't live in London. Yeah, he lives in Horsham. Cre Creek Bucks. <laughs> but, yeah, but I, I guess, like, that's all there just so they can have the really, really awful Time Flies ending. Oh. <laughs> like, you've done such a good job at making some of the other time elements stack up, and then... <laughs> Does... This is a question. Does David Renwick know how to end an episode? <laughs> Does he know Absolutely. how to put a button on uh, a comedy drama or drama? Obviously, in a sitcom, it's a little bit easier because you can have joke right at the end, yeah. a silly conclusion. With Jonathan Creek, I kind of always feel like the silly conclusions or the little looks or the little freeze frames really undoes quite a lot of the mystery and coolness of Jonathan mm. Creek and this one in particular. I guess it happens with any relationship Jonathan and Maddie were, are, like, are they, aren't they? Once you've established that, how do you keep drawing it out in interesting ways that don't become annoying until yeah. they actually do it? I, I'm talking about putting buttons on the end of comedy episodes. Did that in the finale of One Foot in the Grave. Hit and run. Is. That's what you want in a comedy finale. <laughs> on the next episode, we're tracking down a priceless painting and discovering the merits of potpourri in the scented room. Up the Creek is produced by RKG. We make videos and podcasts about games, movies, basically anything fun, including 23-year-old BBC shows about a magician's assistant who lives in a windmill. If you'd like to find out more, visit patreon.com forward slash RKG.